When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Denny Somak. This is The Rock Podcast. And on this episode, it's a new conversation with Rod Argent and Colin Blundstone, also known as The Zombies. They currently have a new album out, Different Game, a new feature documentary entitled Hung Up on a Dream, directed by musician and filmmaker Robert Schwartzman and co-produced by him and Tom Hanks, slated for release later in 2023. And they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2019. Now, I've known and interviewed both of them a few times over the years and have seen them in concert. So this conversation went deep, as we usually do, Especially at the end, we discuss some things that they have not ever been asked previously. So you don't want to miss a moment of this. I'm very happy to present Rod Argent and Colin Blundstone, The Zombies. Obviously, I, I know your history, big fan. It's amazing to see you back together, having all this success, just phenomenal. You got a new album coming out called Different Game. So we'll start with that. Uh, you were going to record this uh, before the pan pandemic or when did you record it? That was the idea. Um, we, we had a, a great year in America uh, in playing live leading up to the point where we were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I thought the band had never sounded so good. And I was really keen to get back and start recording the new album. And we decided we wanted to do it in the way that many many years ago we would have to because there were only a few tracks available so everyone would have to play at the same time always so it was almost as close to a live experience as you can get in the studio using all studio facilities right. so we deliberately did this but it meant getting everybody in the studio together um and also it was very important that i felt this time that i wanted to you know because chris is not with us i i wanted to like odyssey and oracle i wanted to be in charge totally of the production. So for better or worse, I wanted my ideas of how my songs should sound um, coming over on the final record. So that they were the criteria. And we, we went back and we started and we loved the first two tracks that we recorded. 
and we thought we were really on a roll. And then, of course, the pandemic hit with a, a vengeance. Um, and we went through a two year period where we couldn't get everybody in the same room all the time. And that was a really important facet of what we wanted to do. So um, uh, it ground to a halt and it was very frustrating, but it gave me the space to write the rest of the material on the album, except for one beautiful song that Colin already had that we, we recorded at the end of the album. Um, so that was the process of recording the album. And we were really knocked out with the final result. I mean, and we've had the most wonderful industry reaction. I know it's not out to the general public yet, but we've had the most wonderful industry reaction to it with a lot of people saying it's the best thing we've done since Odyssey and Oracle. So that's lovely. Now, is there a story behind Different Game, the, the, the song, the title song? There is, um, but it applies to many different scenarios. Um, when I wrote that, it was about a specific um, a specific story about uh, people that I can't name, really. Um, but it doesn't matter. Um, it's about how um, it was a band, actually, but it was about how one of the members in particular blamed the rest of the band for... Um, for his own insecurities now later on in their career um, and how the real reason was that life when you start out and when you're really young um, and 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 the way things develop is a very different game later on in life um, that was the that was the subject material of the song but it could easily just as relate it could easily relate um, just as easily to to people who um, are dealing with things in 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 as they've really reached a certain stage in their life that seems so different now to them to when they were young. And life really is a different game when you get, get older, but it's not that you can't deal with it, but you have to realise and, and be honest with yourself and realise what is really the problem and not blame other people for things which may be centred around you. That was the story. But it's whatever people want to bring to it, you know, and their own experiences. It really is. I think all songs should be like that that it's about what people bring to the song themselves. Well, I have an advance, so I, I don't have the who wrote what song. So okay. I'm assuming that, uh, are they all original songs? Yes, all of them. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now, I see you've announced uh, some European dates. Will there be American dates coming up? Well, definitely there's um, American dates. Well, while we're here, we're playing at South by Southwest. So we're going right. to be there for about close on to a week. And then we're going to play dates across the southern states of America. And then we're going on one of these music themed cruises. Right. Uh, we, and we played on this one last year and it, it um, was very enjoyable and it went down very well. And then we go back and we're playing in the UK for the whole of April. So the next few weeks are pretty full on. And strangely enough, we don't play in the UK that often. I don't think we've played for three or four, maybe five years. So it'll be interesting to get back to the UK and play. After that, someone was asking me, you know, what said, so what's happening in the summer? And I thought, that's enough for me for now. Just the release of the record. We've got a, a, a documentary that's being released. It's being premiered at South by Southwest. It's an hour and 45 minutes. It's, it's a, a history of the zombies right from the very beginning up until, you know, yesterday. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting documentary um and then we've got all these dates as well so our days are pretty full but i don't know what happens 
after the first week in May. I think um, I'm going to find somewhere very quiet and probably go to sleep for a long time. <laughs> so it, the documentary is finished or is it still? Yes. Finished? Yeah, no, it's finished. It's yeah. Absolutely finished. It, it, I was going to tell you, I, I may have some video and audio from all those shows that you did. All right. I know Rick Krim. I haven't spoken to him in years, but if you want to have him contact me, maybe I have some stills it's or something I want to use. Tell him to give me a buzz. Okay, right. will do. I mean, the thing is, it Ellen, is. Ellen knows how to reach me. Yeah, it, it is finished now. The executive producer is Tom Hanks, right. um, and um, uh, the director is Robert Schwartzman, who is from the Coppola family, mm -hmm. uh, and he's done a beautiful job on it. I have to say, it's it's a very affecting movie. So I don't know if you've heard this comment, but if you have, fine. If you haven't, I'd like to get your reaction. So somebody said that uh, the Zombies is the best 60s band still touring, which doesn't have Mick Jagger as the front man. I, I did see that quote. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, um, Mick, Mick is joining us next week. He's going <laughs> to he's gonna join us as a dual front, front man. <laughs> so, you know... Interesting it, thought, isn't it? I, 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 I think we should take that as a great compliment. And Stones yeah. are a great band. Yeah, yeah Absolutely. of course. Absolutely. So you have such a unique history i mean i'm just going to dabble on some of them but your career is just you know well, i don't have to tell you you know and i'm sure people have been asking you because you broke up and then you had a hit and then somehow al cooper heard it and he championed it and it came out you have a big hit and rod you're Thank you, al. yeah yeah now, now how did how did al hear about it number one and number two did you know him before that no but we knew he was he he'd, he'd um produced some of my favorite records and 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 a and and played you know he he was he was such an important character around that time and personality um and without him the oddest oracle album and time of the season would never have been released in america certainly uh he came over because he just joined columbia as as their main a and r man mm -hmm. and the hot producer that he was at the time um and he picked up 200 albums in the uk and out of those 200, he went back um, and he said, he told Clive, the, Clive Davis, the, the story. He right. said, this is the only album you have to release. He said, you have to find it. Whoever's got it. I don't know who's got it over here. He said, but you've got to find it and buy it. It doesn't matter how much it costs. And Clive said, well, we own it. He said, but we we passed on it because we don't think it's really commercial. Now, that, that's been the history for us mm -hmm. all through our career. Even she's not there, people... The record company didn't really think it was commercial and uh, and it became a number one record and time of the season was never considered commercial by clive davis and yet he finally put it out at al's insistence as the third release and, and he wasn't even going to release it um because he said we put two things out and it hasn't been a hit um but al said you've got to put it out and it became a number one um incidentally 50 years to the very day that yeah. we were um inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame it became uh, before 50 years before that was the date that cashbox published the chart when it was number one in the whole of america so where were you where were you when you found out it was number one because you obviously weren't uh, rod you had your band but and colin you're probably working on some stuff but what did somebody call you and say hey by the way you know your song is number one in america can you tell can i tell you i know exactly where i was yeah i was um um, the zombies had broken up by that time, by 18 months, and 
Um, just before Arjun went out on the road, um, I had some time to fill. And my cousin, Jim Rodford, who was the founder member of Argent with me, um, mm -hmm. was doing some backing just for a few weeks of Gene Pitney. And with Gene Pitney and the Grease Band with Joe Cocker um, supporting Gene Pitney. And I remember it became number one in America. And I didn't think anyone in the UK had ever heard it. And Joe was in his dressing room. And I walked into Joe Cocker's dressing room in the Grease Band. And, 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 and I was greeted with Joe going, it's the time of the season. And he sang the whole thing through. And I said, how on earth did you hear that? He said, it's number one in America. That's how I found out it was number one. Unbelievable. So tell us the story behind the song. Um, it was the last song that we recorded, Cole, wasn't it? For the album. Yeah, for, for the album. Yeah. And um, it was it was written very quickly before the. I thought it, I, I was sharing a, a, a flat with um, with uh, Chris at the time, with Chris White. And I remember playing it to him and saying, do you know what, Chris? I think this could be a hit. But no one else thought so. I don't think Chris even thought so. And certainly the members of the band didn't think so, but they liked it. So we recorded it. Um, and it was the last one where Colin and I fell out in the studio because um, Cole was uh, looking at, uh, what was it you were doing, Cole? Well, I, I felt very pressured because we were running, we only had a very small budget. We were running out of money. This was the last track. And it happens where the mic was set up. I had a big clock right in front of me and that a red light underneath it, just to emphasize studio times ticking away, you know, the red light and the clock. and. I'd only just heard the song. It was only sort of finished the morning before we recorded it in the afternoon. So Rod was coaching me from the control room. We talk a lot about phrasing. And so he would be saying, this phrase is on the beat. Or can you push this phrase? And and I could see the time was running up. And I was saying all this in a very kind way. He was, he was being really supportive. But I was starting to panic. And I started some very uh, forceful language uh, uh, down the microphone, forgetting that the whole band were there and a lot of people from Abbey Road were there. I was still just talking to Rod and the language just got more and more intense, very, very bad language. And it, it's always amused me that I'm singing, it's the time of the season for loving, <laughs> whilst we were shouting at one another and, and with very, very bad language. Um, but anyway, we managed to finish it with about five seconds to go, I think, in the end and you, you've just sort of outlined what happened after that in the UK there was no interest in the in Odyssey and Oracle or the zombies at all and so it just we kind of felt that the band had run its course and everybody decided to move on to other projects but as we we just touched on Al Cooper bought the album and really really liked it and, and it started a, a new life because of his interest. Mm -hmm. And when he talked to Clive Davis and convinced Clive to release it, um, suddenly our, our lives were changed forever, really. I think I thought that certainly my life in the music business had finished because when the, ba when the band stopped, I, I didn't have any openings that I could try. I didn't want to leave the music business, but there just weren't any opportunities. And it was 
it was incredible to hear that it was starting to climb the charts. I think from my part, I'm not sure I really believed it when people started telling me. I thought they were just being kind. And then eventually you find it is actually a huge hit. And and for me, that's in a way started a solo career. Um, I, I started making records again. And my first album was actually with Rod and Chris White producing me. And it's an album called One Year. And there was a huge hit. Love the in, album. Oh, Love thank you very much. There was a huge hit in the UK and and in Europe. Sadly, it was never a commercial success in America, but um, it started me off. So it's really, this is all down to time of the season. It started me off as a solo artist, and I recorded and toured as a solo artist for many years before we got back together again in 1999. So... Right, is there a story about how the song came together or the lyrics? Is What prompted you to write it? Um, it was against the background, as you remember, of, at the time in, in, in 1967, of um, the Vietnam War and the corresponding peace movement that was on. Um, and, and the feeling, because people were seeing footage from the Vietnam War that was pretty graphic for the times. And before that, um, any war reporting had been very sanitized and very much um, on the side of, of whoever was broadcasting their nation. But suddenly they were seeing some of the things with napalm and everything that were actually going on on television. And, and, and the youth of the world were horrified and they and they reacted against this. And that's when the love and peace movement really got underway against that background. Um, and. We couldn't help but be affected by that because even though we were never naive enough to um, believe the whole whole thing, the the actual background was 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 very profound, really, in some ways, and you couldn't help but be um, affected by it. So it, it was it was against that, you know, like um, what's your name? Who's your daddy? Is he rich like me? What is he rich li like me means is not to do with money. It's is he rich enough to teach you what you need to live in the sense of his, his, the richness of his spirituality or whatever. It was that that feeling. And I know I know it's not terribly plain, but it wasn't meant to be terribly plain. You know, it's people bringing um, their own thing to it. Um, and, and it was, in a sense, in some ways, um, I mean, that was the overriding thing, but it was in some ways. Um, a little nod in places to George Gershwin because we always used to play Summertime throughout our career right from the beginning and um, there's a line in Summertime it goes your dad is rich and your mama's good looking um, and and it was an, an amusing for me in a little in joke that I was saying hello to George Gershwin with uh, you know with, with, with that that lyric. So you got inducted into the Hall of Fame 2019 longest wait ever for a man to get in. Of course, you well deserved it. I think, I don't think there's one other person that got inducted that year that was even born when you were in your heyday. Yeah, that's quite well, awesome. yeah, Maybe Roxy music, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But uh, tell me, tell me what the feeling was when you when you knew you were going to be inducted. Oh, it's incredible because uh, first of all, we had a, a wonderful over three hundred thousand people voted for us in the fan vote, which is a mind boggling amount of people that are voting for you to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and then eventually, uh, our peers, the the members of the Rock Hall, voted for us. So, I mean, all artists 
want their work to be appreciated by their peers, by their fellow musicians. So it was really wonderful that they had noticed and acknowledged our achievements. And in a way, perhaps it validates what we've been doing over the years. So it was it was an incredible experience. And, and the actual uh, ceremony of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in front of 17,000 people at the Barclays Centre in Brooklyn. And it was just wonderful. They were a very, very enthusiastic audience. And to get up there, and we, we actually performed with the original members of the Zombies, which we, we don't tour with regularly. And it was a magical evening and something I'll never forget. So did you, uh, Susanna Hoffs inducted you, had you met her before? Oh, yes. yeah. Yes. In fact, she came along um, earlier on. There was a, a thing that was made for the fans, really, that said, um, you know, the fans went in for a competition and they could come and sing a song with us uh, of their choosing of, of out of our catalogue at, at a sound check with us backing them. You know, like, so someone might want to come on and sing This Will Be Our Year or something like that. Um, and Susanna and and we we went through this for a few days, and it was it was really charming, you know that that happened. And then one day the next person came out, and it was Susanna Hoffs, and we said, "What? What are you doing here?" <laughs> and, and and she'd she'd asked if she could be part of this this thing, you know, and uh, that was the first time I met her. I think first you. time for me. Yeah, and then we did an acoustic show. Uh, in Los Angeles at another time, a very intimate, uh, but quite prestigious uh, venue. And uh, Susanna Hoff came along then and, and she came backstage and had a chat. So we did know her quite well uh, by the time we got to the Rock and Roll. And she was a time. huge fa a fan. She, yeah. uh, she'd been turned on to us actually by Matthew Sweet, who she was making some, some, uh, some albums with, um, some solo things with and she said that Matthew Sweet said you've got to listen to this band and listen to what they've done and she knew about us but she hadn't really tuned in but she did tune into us and she became absolutely actually obsessed with some of our catalogue and she said at one point that she woke up every single morning and played a rose for Emily uh, from Odyssey and Oracle every day so yeah. you must be finding people all the time who come up and said, you know, you, you influenced me. You did, I mean, I, Kurt Cobain was a fan, you know, yeah. about writing about you in his diaries, right? Oh, and it's, it's really amazing. And um, I met um, Dave Grohl for the first time. He, he came to, he, we were on with him, weren't we, Cole, on, yeah. a, on a, a, a festival, um, but he was on another stage. But as we walked off after our set on our stage, he was standing in the sign and, and he said, um, and he said how much he, he loved us and everything and and that he used to play his album uh, uh his his album of odyssey and oracle to his kids each night before they went to bed and then he said he actually said this might be my favorite album of all time and 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 paul weller said the same thing to us um it, it's well, just and been tom and petty. tom petty yeah. yeah it's it's just been lovely actually and all this started with She's Not There because you yeah. won a talent contest, right? That's yes. right, yeah. Okay, so right, uh, She's Not There, was that based on a blues riff? Uh, it, was, it wasn't based on a blues riff, no. But um, I had to write a song for our recording session coming up. I'd only ever written one song in, in my life before that. And so 
I went home and I knew I only had two weeks before our recording session. So I thought, right, I need something, some moment of inspiration. I need something to trigger a song. So I pulled out a John Lee Hooker album, uh, an early blues album by John Lee Hooker. And the, the first track on the album was called No One Told Me. Now, I emphasise that apart from those few syllables, no one told me, four syllables, right? Um, uh, nothing to do with the melody or what the song was about or or the words were anything to do with John, except that, that those words seemed to trip off my tongue. And I thought, you've got to start somewhere. So I started singing to myself, oh, no one told me. And then... I thought, OK, I'm going to plan this song now. I can start at this point. And I and I started weaving a story, just a, a love story, really, about rejection and, and whatever. But musically, I wanted it to start. I knew very clearly what I wanted to do. I wanted to have a, a blues scale um, to inform the melody of the first part in the verse. So that was where the blues influence came. It wasn't John's melody. It was my own melody, and it was quite jazzy in a way, but it was based on a blues scale. And then I wanted the middle section to uh, go through a little chord sequence that I particularly liked. Um, and then I wanted it to build into a climax. And although it started in a minor key, I wanted it to build into a... a a climax that was in a major chord and so it went you know but she's not there and then drop down right again again into a mood into the moody blues scale yeah not moody blues but a moody blues scale and um and then as always with me i couldn't help myself playing a, a sort of slightly jazzy improvised solo in the middle of it and i always seem to insert that thing you know it's a, a selfish thing to insert that in into my songs um because i enjoy doing it so much and, and that was a record really and then you, you had a uh tell her no follows that correct yeah yep. you have two hits in a row now you should have had a third one how did people get a hold of i love you that's an interesting thought isn't yeah. it I, do you know i don't think i don't i don't think it honestly struck us as a, a commercial song no. I, don't, I don't remember and nobody and it, else I said it, did they? No, I don't remember anyone picking up. That's one of the tracks that just simply got away, you know. But they did a great version of it. They really did. Most and, people uh, don't know that that's a zombie song. I know, I know. Yeah, that's true. And there was sometimes when we play She's Not There, I know this has happened to you, that uh, we play She's Not There and people think it's a Santana song. I was yeah, just going to ask yeah. you about that. What did you think of the Santana's cover? I, I absolutely loved it. I really, really loved it. They were one of my favourite bands, Santana, and they hadn't had a, a hit single for a long time. Right. That, they were in a desert, singles-wise, and then they they got a hit with my song again, which really gave me a huge lift. I, I thought it was wonderful, and I, I actually thought they did an absolutely great job on it. I still think it sounds terrific, actually, that 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 cover. So I got to ask you this, Rod, and you'll appreciate it because I've actually been there a few times. Uh, I know you you don't have the music store anymore, do you? No. no. Okay. So when you had it, what famous people came in to buy their instruments there? Well, I was never in the music store, um, so I, I don't really know, except I know that Trevor Horn uh, used to come in and, 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 and play. I remember that. I remember being visiting it one day. Um, I, you know, I kept my eye on how the everything was run in the shot because 
I started from the premise of not liking music stores at all. And if I was going to have one or be involved in one, I said, there's, there's a couple of things you have to do. And the most important thing is if someone comes in with no money, but wants to talk to you about music and playing, you've got to let him demo on whatever he wants, because, you know, people fall in love with music. And as a keyboard player, you, you mustn't just blank him because he's got no money. You know, I, I remember going to music shops and really not liking the experience. I felt out of place and everything. You've got to make them welcome. And that really paid dividends because some of those people then became really prominent, you know, players and 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 they came back then and always used our, our store. Um, so that, that was the one thing I remember most about it. Um, but I do remember going in there uh, one day and 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 uh, Trevor Horn was in there and it was before he had hit records or anything like that um, and playing away. And 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 it was great, actually. Um, but it was a really nice atmosphere in there. And a lot of musicians have since told me that it was their favorite music store because that they loved the the creative vibe that was going on all the time there. I've heard people have mentioned it in interviews over the years to me. Oh. I've been around as long as you have interviewing people. So yeah, 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 yeah. Almost. Now, Colin, I know uh, you did some solo albums and a friend of mine, you work with a friend of mine, Alan Parsons, for the Alan Parsons. Right, absolutely, yes. Of course, his band Keats, because he took me to the restaurant. Yes. Um, but I got to tell you, one of the favorite songs of yours, and I can't remember which album it's on, was that Pete Barden's tune, On the Air. Phenomenal. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, you should do it in, in the Zombies. It's a great song. It is a really good song, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Pete recorded that um, as a producer, I think in the 80s or something like that. And, and then I did a cover of it in uh, a, a much more recent album. I, I really like that song. It's it's a great song. I've, I've done it in my solo shows, but we've never done it in the Zombies. The thing is with the Zombies, we have such a vast repertoire of songs. Right. It, it's it's quite difficult to know uh, what songs to put in and what songs to leave out. But I was a big fan of Pete Barden's. Uh, he was a fine musician and he had so much energy. You know, he was he was just working away all the time and sadly uh, passed away far too young. Uh, he was a great musician and also great fun to be with, a real character. But strangely enough, he was one of the first musicians we ever met outside of St. Albans. That's right. Because our very first gig when we were semi-pro uh, outside of St. Albans, outside of St. Albans uh, was a place called Kingston Baths. And it was the most horrendous acoustic in the world. There were hardly anybody there. Uh, and it was uh, this baths were tiled everywhere. And so it was hugely echoey and, and unpleasant. And the other band that we shared the gig with was fleet what was later became well it was they recorded the shanes, the shanes but the drummer Mick, was Mick Fleetwood. yeah and, and Pete, Pete Bardens was, was playing in it he was the yeah. keyboard player and we loved we loved what they were playing yeah, didn't we? they were great yeah. yeah he was a great guy he played in them van morrison made some yeah. solo records and passed away 2002 i think of a brain hemorrhage so yeah, knew yeah. Him well i knew him pretty well so tell me, what are some of the things that you'd like to do? I mean, obviously you're touring, you got a new record out. Uh, now that you've been inducted and, you know, what are some of the other things that you'd like to do? Are people coming to you and asking you to do things for soundtracks, for TV? What's going on? Well, that happens all the time. 
um, we get our, our, our records, but we don't really get involved in that. We've got other people to do that for us. But um, I'll tell you what I want to do. I, I, personally, I want us to have, for the very first time in the UK, the Zombies have never charted it in the album charts, ever. And it looks like this new album, because of the interest that, that has suddenly been generated in the UK, um, and the pre-sales and everything, it looks like it may well chart in the in the uh, album charts in in the UK in the national album charts. And if that happens, that would be the first time that we've ever achieved that. And that's the next thing I want to see at this stage. I mean, we're seventy seven years old, and uh, and and we're an emerging rock band. Yeah, right. Well, it's <laughs> still classics. I run the classic rock archives in America. Yeah, I'm putting you both in. Okay. So let me ask you, um, has there, um, have you done a biography? Have you just any thoughts about writing something about the story of the zombies? I know there've been some fan books, but any official biography? Often, uh, well, there's ha sort of have, haven't there? But... There have been, and I, I know I, I've been asked to do a biography. Yeah, me too. Two, two yeah. or three times. Haven't, I'm not sure that I I'm really want to do it. I if I, if I was to do it, I would do it for my family primarily. I mean, maybe it would be available commercially, but I, I'd quite like my family to know uh, something about the experiences that we've had on the road and, and you know, just my life in general. And what I don't want to do is, which most publishers insist on, is put the uh, lurid rock and roll side of what might have gone on in the beginning, etc. I'm just not interested in that at all. And and you know, they, they think that's a real selling point. They all they always do that. Not not interested. What we have got is this documentary film um that's being premiered at South by Southwest, which I think is a beautiful film. And it beautifully tells the story of us right from the beginning, right up until the present day. So that's that that's what I would love my family to see. And I'm sure they will. So I gotta ask you this question. I don't know how many people have asked you, but because it was a long time ago. Tell me about the fake zombies. This was a tour set up by somebody. They put you on the road as the zombies and two of the guys in that band later went on to become two thirds of ZZ Top. That's right. It's, it's true. I mean, uh, when Time of the Season was a huge hit single, the zombies had ceased to exist. And so there was a vacuum and the music business hates a vacuum. So they filled the vacuum with phony zombie bands. There were three that I know of. You've, you've just mentioned one of them. And it, one of the amusing things was that Chris White was in the original bass player in the zombies, was right. in the offices of Rolling Stone. And they got Chris to phone the manager of one of these phony bands and posing as a journalist for Rolling Stone and to ask them what's going on with this band. And the manager said to Chris White that they were trying to honor the life of the lead singer of the zombies who'd been tragically killed in a motor accident. I never knew that about. No, no, I didn't know it about myself actually. So I've actually read my epitaph 50, uh, 50 years before, well, I mean, hopefully it'll be a little bit longer. Well, in um, addition to Paul is dead, there's Colin is dead. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, 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 Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And you can, it's, you can see it in Rolling Stone. It, it was part of a, a story in Rolling Stone. So there were three bands that were pretending to be us. And we, to be honest, I don't think we really 
took much notice because we were busy doing other things. There was an, another band in the 80s or the 90s that was an English band pretending to be the zombies who were particularly poor, very, very bad. I read one or two reviews about them, but that was a little bit worrying. And I did try to stop them. I contacted their manager. I contacted the Musicians Union, tried a few things, and they stopped quite suddenly. And I thought, I don't know what I did, or maybe some of the other guys in the band were trying to do things. I didn't know what I'd done, but it had worked. They stopped. And then I heard the full story that they were so appalling that one of the fans that had gone along to watch them had gone round to the dressing room afterwards. And I don't recommend this as a way of doing business. I really don't. But he pulled a gun on them and he said, you are not the zombies. You're not going to play anymore. That's it. And that was it. They stopped. As I say, I don't recommend that as a way of doing business, but it was very effective. Did you ever run into uh, uh, Frank Beard or Dusty, uh, Dusty Hill? No. Would you talk to him about it if you did? Oh, I wouldn't mind. I I always found it amusing. Yeah, I, I really did. I think they were the two two people that didn't have beards in 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 right. ZZ Top. Yeah. Well, I I don't know. There's only even though he was called Frank Beard, he was yeah. the one without a beard. Well, there's only three of them. Two of them did have beards. So. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it, as as Rod said. I I think we we thought it is an ex, uh, an amusing side story. Really, I, I hope they had a good time. I hope they got paid, which is more than we ever did. They did. They got two hundred dollars <laughs> a show. I read the article that Ben Fontoris wrote. They got two hundred dollars a show. Well, it's more than we got at <laughs> the time. Yes. Oh yeah. Let's not go into. No, that. we won't go into that. Well, you see, you got all these stories. You got to put a book together because people, I don't know how many people ask you about this kind of stuff, but I'm one of those guys that likes to dig deep. So yes. uh, I had to get the answer to that. You know. Anyway, uh, listen, uh, I want to thank you. I want to wish you a lot of luck with the new album. Uh, I happen to be in Florida, so I'm going to check to see if you're coming around anywhere. I know the ship, uh, is it the Flower Power Tour or one of those? Yeah, we're doing that. Yeah. To the edge, yeah. So I know you usually play dates before that takes off or when it returns. So I'm going to check the schedule. And if, if there's something there, I'll definitely come see you. I did see you a couple of times uh, over the years uh, on some package shows and uh, some other places. You always put on a tremendous show. So I want to recommend to everybody, if you get a chance, it's not a nostalgic oldie show. It's, oh, it's not. old songs, but it's got the energy of, of of a new band yeah totally we, we feel it has yeah so that's why it's so exciting to con still continue the career okay well listen guys thanks a lot sometime maybe we can do a part two because we didn't scratch the surface of the history but i hope you got a got enough uh stories out of that and uh i want to wish you a lot of luck with the album oh thank, thank you, you so, so much. much lovely to see you again lovely to see you yeah okay, guys. that's my conversation with the zombies rod argent and Colin Blundstone. Thanks for listening and being part of the Rock Podcast. Tell your friends. They can hear us. We're available at all the usual places you get your podcasts. And we have a video version on YouTube. You can also sign up to our channel, and you'll be notified when a new episode is released. And, of course, it's free, no admission charge, just a lot of rock and roll memories. Now, we have recently begun our third season, so you can check out all the previous episodes we have uh, like The Doors, Yes, Billy Gibbons, Nancy Wilson of Heart, Led Zeppelin, Bruce Springsteen, Roger Waters, and many others. 
we feature new interviews as well as classic conversation from my archives. The Rock Podcast is the number one podcast for classic rock, and I thank you. You can find us at the website, therockpodcast.com, and on Facebook. You can also send your comments. Let me know what you think. Contact me at hello at therockpodcast.com. I love hearing from you. So till next time, I'm Denny Somak, and that's it for now. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.